calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 8. Three. Don't you think we should have called for backup? hissed Sal as she followed Asante across the street to the front of the line. Perhaps it was because they were closer, but the gathered crowd looked larger than the previous day. Not yet. We need to see what we're up against, Asante said. You can handle yourself in a fight, can't you? Yes, Sal said, although I haven't gone up against a full riot on my own before. You'll make do, Asante said. She didn't make eye contact with the people in the line as she stepped up and knocked smartly on the glass door. A wide-eyed young man in a white apron unlocked it and stuck his head out. Sal noticed he kept his booted foot in the bottom of the door, propped to stop the group from pushing it open. Good evening, sir. Asante said, smiling again. We are special guests of Chef Hunter. Yesterday, she assured me she would find room for me at the bar tonight. The busboy opened his mouth, looking as if he were about to protest, but then shut the door in their faces and locked it quickly. He turned his back to the door. That didn't go well, Sal said. What now? Asante shook her head and pointed at the busboy, who was clearly listening to something from the kitchen. He turned and opened the door again, looking quite pale. Of course, ladies, won't you come in? I'll get the bartender and some menus. They entered with howls of protest sounding behind them. The interior was, well, wrong. Sal couldn't put her finger on it. The decorating was lovely, with black and purple flowers on every table. Sal quickly counted at least 15 tables downstairs, with a few two-top tables around the bar. Each table also held small candles, already lit and flickering. The hostess met the busboy with the menus, shooting Sal and Asante a frightened look. Her black hair was twisted into a bun atop her head, some strands coming free, and her dark skin was pale as she looked at them briefly, then back at the busboy. He whispered urgently, pointing at the kitchen and then back at them. 
We've made an impact already. Wonderful, Sal said. That was done even earlier. Look, Asante said, gesturing behind Sal at the window facing the street. The early entrants hadn't gone unnoticed, and people had begun hammering their fists on the glass, then started hammering their fists into each other. That's our late tonight, goodness, said the hostess, approaching them. She wore a sharp black suit and limped on her right leg slightly. That's the price of fame, I fear. Chef Hunter has instructed me to bring you some smoked trout as an appetizer, and the bartender will be here soon to take your drink orders. Can I get you anything else? Glass of water? Sal asked hopefully. The woman nodded. The bartender, a short man of about 20, arrived, tying his apron around his waist and looking at them as if he wished he could throw them out. Ladies, what can I tempt you with? He asked, forcing a smile. Asante ordered a Dark Island Reserve beer, but the bartender said they were out. She ordered a white wine instead, and Sal figured she would let the airplane vodka leave her system before she did anything else. Especially if she were suddenly playing Grace's role with the fighting, and she didn't know what she was fighting. Sal's water arrived, and she saw a small lipstick smudge on the glass. She snapped her fingers and looked around the room again. The flowers in the vases were slightly droopy, not dead, but clearly not fresh. The candles burned low. The tablecloths were stained here and there, and one table had crumbs on the tablecloth when the restaurant hadn't even opened yet. The bar looked to be out of gin, in addition to Dark Island Reserve beer, a local favorite, according to the signs behind the bar, which seemed odd for the beginning of the night. This restaurant looks as if it's mid-shift, Sal whispered to Asante as the bartender searched for a corkscrew for Asante's wine. What do you mean? Asante asked. The restaurant hasn't opened yet, Sal said, but the place looks like it just closed, not like it's about to open. They're out of a Scottish beer and gin, and the place is dirty. Asante looked around with fresh eyes, slowly nodding as she saw what Sal saw. It's like they have too much going on. They can't hold the basics together. The hostess opened the door and chaos flowed in. Once the customers came in, they changed. All of them were eager, some of them sporting injuries from brawls outside, but they all smoothed their clothes and calmly followed the hostess to their seats where each person whispered to a lover or a spouse or entertained a small group. The waitstaff came forward, looking like the restaurant, as if they were at the middle or end of the night, not the beginning. The bar filled with people waiting for their tables, and the place was like any other nice restaurant bar Sal had ever been to. People discussed football and politics and news and told work anecdotes. Beside them, a woman was breaking up with her boyfriend, and he was trying not to cry. Across the bar, two men were arguing about whose turn it was to buy the football tickets. Nothing turned violent or frightening, not like outside, where people still fought to get in. Drinks began to flow, and Sal and Asante paused to eat their appetizer. Sal frowned as she chewed. Something else is weird. Asante raised an eyebrow. The food is good, but not amazing, Sal said, leaning in to whisper. It's not worth fighting over. Asante opened her mouth as if to protest, but Sal stopped her, holding up her hand. I'm not putting the place down, but I figured the food had to be orgasm on a plate to cause this kind of fuss. I was even a little worried we might fall under the spell if we ate it. But it's just standard nice restaurant food. Where does the magic come in? Is it all marketing magic? Asante considered what she had said, chewing slowly. We need to talk to Mary Alice, she said. I just wanted more information before confronting the poor girl.
The poor girl looked to be orchestrating a slave-driving restaurant with a worldwide reach. But Sal allowed Asante her fluffy illusions. I agree, we need to see the back of the house. They aren't likely going to allow us to go straight back. I think we'll need to access it through the alley. Let's go, said Asante. Asante covered the drinks and appetizer, leaving a tip for the bartender. I thought you don't tip in Europe, Sal asked as they left, sidestepping a guy kneeling on the sidewalk, holding his stomach where it looked like he had just been punched. I think that boy needed it, Asante said. Sal couldn't disagree. The line had gotten more or less structured after the restaurant had opened. Police at either end of the block half-heartedly tried to control the crowd. Sal looked back inside. The hostess dealt with the crowd in a harried way, but still worked efficiently. Her eyes flicked frequently to the line out the door, as if she were expecting something. The bar was now packed, as was every table. Each person who bypassed the line, dressed in the restaurant's purple and black, they each had a purple thistle pinned to their breasts, just like everyone who ate at the tables. People with reservations must get these, Sal figured. She frowned. She was still hungry. It was an insistent hunger, one that usually led to unwise food decisions, like when she went too long without lunch and would settle for the closest fast food she could get to. The line's order then dissolved in an instant. The crowd was buzzing like a hive, watching those with reservations with envious eyes. But one person, a man of about 50 with salt and pepper thinning hair, looking wealthy and important in a gray suit, but still in the walk-ins line, reached out for a woman's arm with one hand, and his other hand went for the thistle pinned to her dress. The crowd acted as if it were a stick of dynamite just looking for a spark. The woman cried out and punched the man immediately, and her partner leapt at him, knocking him to the ground. The line broke, some people rushing for the door, others trying to stop them. Fists flew, kicks lashed out, angry voices rose. Instinctively, Sal looked to the police. They were already present. She figured the situation would be calmed instantly. But the bored-looking officers were now wading into the fray, adding to the chaos, looking for their opportunity to get in the front door. In Sal's experience, people reacted in one of two ways to riots. They either ran into it, the energy of the crowd pushing them on, or they ran away in fear. This riot had only the first kind. The gender, age, or race of the people involved didn't matter. Everyone on the block seemed to be running forward to fight for a table at a restaurant. Asante remained calm. Why haven't we been affected by this mad desire? She asked. By all rules of magic, we should be running back in there as well. Sal shrugged, figuring the question was rhetorical, but answering anyway. That's your area. I'm more interested in finding the back door and getting away from this nuthouse. She grabbed Asante's hand and started to skirt around the fights to access the alley. She had to dodge a fist here, a pair of grabbing hands there, and a rather frightening face, lips peeled back, preparing to bite her hand that held Asante's arm. Sal kicked that person in the knee and he fell, howling. Sal and Asante hurried to the alley, which was remarkably empty. Why aren't they trying the back door? Asante wondered. No one goes into a restaurant by the back door except for staff. People don't even consider it. I'm betting very few people are dining and dashing either. They want the full experience. And by the way, the magic is working, I think. I'm feeling very odd coming back here. We're not supposed to be here. The magic has soaked into Glasgow gradually, Asante said, her voice barely audible over the crowd. That's why we are not affected very much right now. It's permeated the city slowly without anyone noticing. That's also why the orb's information was so sporadic. 
If we stayed longer, I bet we would feel it. It's not slow anymore. I'm getting hungrier. I can feel the draw, Sal replied and hurried forward. The side door to Thistle on the Moor was propped open with two busboys and a waitress smoking outside. The busboys wore white shirts with lavender aprons streaked liberally with blood. One busboy, a burly lad who looked like he'd missed his calling as a bouncer, smoked his cigarette with a shaking red hand. His face was pale, with two bright red spots on his cheeks. I can't do it anymore, he said, his voice high and shaking. I'm so fucking tired. He broke down and began heaving with exhausted sobs. It was like watching a mountain cry. The other two watched him impassively, not unsympathetic, but not surprised either. You gotta pull it together, Mac, said the waitress. The fight started early tonight. She peered down the alley and caught sight of Sal and Asante. Hey, you can't be back here. All customers go in the front door. Sal sent Asante a meaningful look. We're not customers, she began. What? asked the crying busboy, standing on the concrete steps and trying to hiccup his sobs back. Everyone is a customer. Even we're customers on our days off. Really? asked Sal. When was your last day off? You look like you haven't had one in a while. He looked confused for a moment. I, I don't remember rightly. He looked to the other two for help. A face appeared at the door, a young woman in a chef's uniform. She didn't look as exhausted or harried as the others, but the staff froze when they saw her. Break is over, she said pleasantly. They jumped as if shocked and made to go inside, but the weeping man pointed at Sal and Asante. Shiv, there are customers on the alley. They're not supposed to be here. Hello, Mary Alice, Asante said. Confusion crossed the young woman's face, and she opened her mouth briefly, then closed it. Her eyes flared a purplish red, and Sal took an involuntary step back. Customers aren't allowed back here, Mary Alice said, her voice growing deeper. Take care of them, she said to her employees and turned to go back inside. While these people were clearly under the influence of whatever magic was at work, they were not in top physical shape, and Sal felt guilty fighting them. The waitress, she now saw, had wrist braces on both arms, and the busboy, who wasn't crying, walked on thin legs with a limp. But each of them approached with the energy of another world, an energy Sal was unfortunately getting used to. Asante stepped forward, startling Sal, and met the waitress, reaching out her arm and clotheslining her. She went down into a heap her head hitting the pavement. You're full of surprises today, Sal said. The thin busboy was on her then, his hands reaching for her throat. She sliced inward with both forearms, trapping his arms between hers and squeezing, the pressure forcing him to loosen his grip. She stomped on his bad foot and was about to break free when Asante slammed into her. Sal had been unable to see what the bigger busboy was doing to her friend, but clearly he wasn't as easy to put down as the waitress was. Sal ended up in a pile of garbage bags with the big busboy on top of her, his hands tightening around her throat. She struggled, but the lack of solid ground beneath her made it difficult and the world started to go gray. Then she heard a clang, and the busboy slumped over her. We can imagine many potential futures, some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. 
Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. It was over by the time Sal had struggled out from beneath the boy and regained her footing. The three people who had attacked them were unconscious, slumped against the wall where Asante was trying to position them. Grace stood in the middle of the alley, the bodies of four more kitchen staff around her. They must have gotten reinforcements, Sal realized. Liam came up behind Grace, his face twisted in fury. Maybe now you will learn that you do your fucking job and let Grace do hers. Get in there and shut this down. It's getting way out of control. He definitely did not look like the gentle guy that Sal had spent a passionate night with, but she also found this kind of passion admirable. Most of his rage was directed toward Asante as he took the archivist's elbow. Manchu is waiting on the other end of the alley. You're done here. He pushed her gently toward Manchu and let go of her. Asante smoothed her clothes and touched a cut on her head, frowning with annoyance when it came back bloody. She exchanged looks with Sal before she left. You'll take care of it, she asked. Sal nodded. Promise. Grace went to open the kitchen door that had closed in the scuffle. She said something in Chinese that Sal would have guessed was not very nice. Sal stepped up beside her and said something in English that she guessed was an approximate translation. Liam, looking over their heads, just said, fucking hell. The kitchen, at first glance, looked as if it were made of meat. At second glance, she was sure. Made of meat. The countertops looked solid and white like bone, while the floors, walls, and ceiling were red flesh. 
It was meat, and it wasn't, Sal thought wildly. You didn't call living tissue meat, and yet a chef was at one wall, blood up to her elbows, slicing into it and carving out a piece to throw into a frying pan. Sal's stomach did a slow, forward roll. There, Liam said, pointing to the far wall. He was indicating a book that looked nailed to the wall above a whiteboard that seemed quite out of place in this room of gore. The book was hardbound and open with a glowing red nail through its spine, holding it to the wall. Sal's target, Asante's bizarre inheritance, and the cause of all this mess. The problem was that they had to move past the demon in the middle of the room to get to the book. Mary Alice Hunter had changed once she entered the meat kitchen. Her uniform had taken on the look of flames and her skin had burnt black. Wings of skinless meat and tissue had erupted from her back and had unfurled as she looked at the open door with rage-filled eyes. Through the burned skin on her face, human eyes glinted, begging for help. But the mouth opened and howled, showing sharp, wicked teeth. The kitchen changes her? Sal wondered aloud. Mine, Grace said and ran forward. Sal had never been happier to let someone else go first. Liam was right, this was Grace's job. Sal's job was to figure stuff and people out. She reminded herself to buy Grace a drink. Unlike her dexterous companion, Sal stepped forward into the kitchen and slid on the bloody floor. She swallowed heavily, reminding herself sternly that she had seen much worse while working with the order, and she would probably see worse again before her time was done, and made her way gingerly around the kitchen. The chefs and staff, bizarrely, looked at Grace lunging for their head chef, but didn't stop cooking. They shouted instructions at each other, chopped, seared, and fried. The dishwashers were shoving the dirty dishes into the washers and then carefully removing the clean ones so the walls didn't bleed on them. Sal watched, fascinated, as a drop of blood splattered from the ceiling onto a plate, and the dishwasher swore and moved it to the dirty pile again. The hostess came into the kitchen and yelled that Chef Hunter was in the weeds and needed backup. Then she returned to the front of the house. In this case, in the weeds meant being beaten up by Grace. The woman was making a show of exciting fighting, more ostentatious than Sal had seen before. She realized Grace was trying to draw the attention of all the kitchen staff, the mostly mindless drones, to her, while giving Sal a chance to deal with the book. But once the hostess had yelled that Chef Hunter needed help, they woke up and moved to assist. Grace was clever, allowing the demon to bat her aside and purposefully slamming into the sous chef at the stove, which looked less like a health department-approved gas stove and more like a stone sacrificial altar strewn with bones. The chefs took up the fight, chasing Grace as she ran toward the demon again. The demon herself leapt onto the counter and raised her wings, howling with her head tipped back. Sal winced and covered her ears as each of the kitchen minions followed suit, sending their heads back and joining the call. The crowd outside howled as one. Oh, good, they're all following crazy demon chef, Sal muttered and got closer to the whiteboard. The workers in the kitchen were unlucky. When they paused to join their leader in her bellow, they opened themselves up. With ungodly speed, Grace ran from waiter to busboy to chef, stabbing each of them in the throat with two fingers. They collapsed one after the other, choking and squeaking their outrage. The demon was ready for Grace by the time she returned, though. It threw a chef's knife at her, which she sidestepped. The knife sank into the wall with a squelch, sending Sal's stomach roiling again. She lost it at last, retching onto the floor. The sight of her vomit on the pulsing, bloody surface nearly set her off again, but she steeled herself and pressed on. Unfortunately, the demon heard her getting sick 
and saw her for the threat she was, not only to her, but to her kitchen. Apparently, blood and tissue on the floor, making the floor, was fine, but a bit of sick was out of the question. The health department might get angry, Sal thought hysterically. She blinked, dizzy, when the demon leaped from the counter and landed in front of her, a cleaver clutched in a clawed hand. Sal ducked the swing and slid underneath the demon's arm. The demon righted herself and swung again, and again Sal dodged. The foul floor wouldn't let her be so nimble every time, but the demon was quickly distracted by Grace, who had thrown the knife back at her, sending it straight into her neck. Sal knew a simple stabbing wouldn't stop a demon. They all knew that. But that didn't hide the fact that it was horrifying seeing the demon turn to face Grace with a bloody knife sticking from its neck. I've got to shut this down, Sal thought, her mind racing. She had reached the whiteboard, which had the specials of the day listed in oddly mundane English, but with runes running around the outside of the board. First, Sal tried to grab the book, but it wouldn't budge. It's never that easy, she admonished herself aloud, but she knew to always try the most obvious move first. She may as well have tried to pull a closed door off its hinges. She looked in desperation around the kitchen. Grace grappled with the demon, taking her to the ground and not seeming to care a bit about the gore covering her face, hair, and white blouse. Elsewhere, the kitchen minions were rising to their feet slowly in some cases, but definitely rallying. They would be a problem again soon. Despite the living meatiness of the kitchen, Sal noted that it worked the way a kitchen was supposed to work. Before becoming a cop, she'd known some metaphorically demonic chefs. Little separated some of them from Chef Hunter, besides a lack of magic and a living kitchen. She had loved the hostess job that winter in Vermont, and it had taken some serious thinking to decide that police work was her future, not food. She made her decision one night while trying to help out in the kitchen. She burned the soup, literally burned it. She went back to hostessing and left food service when she entered the academy. She missed it sometimes and found herself oddly nostalgic now, albeit nauseated and frightened and angry as well. Her nostalgia was for the chaotic order that was a kitchen. And when a kitchen ran out of a dish, they would 86 it and let all waitstaff and chefs know. Sal picked up the red dry erase pen and crossed out the first item on the list, salmon cakes. 86 salmon cakes, she yelled to no one in particular. The entire kitchen automatically echoed her. 86 salmon cakes. The runes drawn around the menu glowed bright for a moment, then dimmed. She struck out with the pen again. 86 black pudding. Again, the kitchen echoed her. The runes flared and then dimmed. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it, shouted Grace from underneath the demon. While she seemed to be in the vulnerable position, she had her legs wrapped around the demon, which was struggling to free itself. His face was a mask of pain, and Sal got back to work. When she had officially canceled all the specials for the day, the nail in the wall stopped glowing, and Sal yanked the book free and slammed it shut. Four. The cookbook incident was unlike other jobs, because in this one, they stayed in town after the book had been contained. First, Asante insisted on making sure that Seamus's niece was unharmed after her ordeal, and second, she wanted to attend a proper wake for her mentor. Liam and Grace waited in the alley while Menchu and Asante spoke to the shaken and confused kitchen staff. Sal checked the front of the restaurant where the police were telling the crowd, now bewildered and unsure where they had received their injuries, to go home. The police officers were barely holding it together and looked as if they just wanted to be done with the whole thing. The front of house employees looked deflated, sagging and limp. 
Whatever magic sustained them had left when the book closed. Liam had relaxed back on the concrete steps above the garbage bags and watched Grace walk to and fro. Sal returned to the alley and sat next to him, at a companionable but not intimate distance. Grace, covered in pieces of meat and streaks of gore, ranted as she paced, switching from Chinese to English and back again. It was pretty obvious Grace was lecturing her. The snatches of English she could catch were stupid and team and trust. Liam pulled out his phone. Sal at least left us a clue, he said, holding out his phone to Grace, who ignored it. Telling you she was going to Glasgow with Asante and asking you to Google for good restaurant recommendations is hardly a clue, Grace snapped. You're just mad you thought I was wrong, Liam said, smiling. I'm really glad you got that, Sal said. I figured if it was nothing, then you wouldn't find anything weird. But if you did think something was weird, you'd know to follow us. Why didn't you just tell us, Grace asked, wheeling and staring Sal in the face. Leaving little clues is inefficient. Someone could have been hurt, and that would have been a complete waste of my time. Sal wordlessly pulled the tissue from her pocket and handed it to Grace. The woman took it and wiped some blood off her face. Because I'm new, I made sure you all trusted Asante to do what was right, and when I was satisfied you were happy with her loyalties, I went with her in case she needed backup. And I left a clue to see if you would think she needed backup too. For what it's worth, thanks for showing up. We couldn't have handled this on our own. It's worth nothing, snapped Grace. You put yourself and Asante in jeopardy. What if we hadn't gotten here in time? And you never consulted with me about her loyalties. Sal shrugged. Menchu told me not to bother you during your off hours. I figured you didn't want to see me. What would you have said anyway? Do you think she's loyal? Of course she's loyal. That much has never been questioned, Grace said. There is more than loyalty here. There's common sense and trusting that we have formed this team for a reason. If you had included all of us, then Liam could have done better recon. Did you know you were walking into a gluttony demon's lair when you came here? Liam did. Sal glanced at Liam, feeling a bit guilty. He grinned at her. You clearly couldn't handle yourself in a fight with possessed restaurant workers, Grace continued. And how do you think you would have fared against that demon on your own? Manchu was in there cleaning up your mess. Doesn't he usually do that? And I thought most of the meat had dissolved to ash, Sal said. I was not speaking literally, Grace said coldly. When we work as a team, we work well together. We are efficient. There are fewer injuries, and we do not waste time. Sal sighed and rubbed her sore neck. The adrenaline will wear off soon, and she needed a burger and a beer. Perhaps two. At a restaurant that was loud and dysfunctional and very, very normal. You should know that this is nothing compared to the lecture you're gonna get from Enchu. Liam said close to her ear. Sal nodded. I figured. Asante's history with their target changed one more aspect of their trip. Despite the battle, they were there for her to say goodbye to her mentor. And so Menchu allowed one more day in Scotland to attend Seamus Hunter's funeral and to assess Chef Hunter to make sure she was unharmed from her ordeal. They got rooms in a hotel and returned to clean up. Sal wasn't surprised to get a call from Menchu after giving her exactly one hour to wash, telling her to meet him in his room. Considering Liam's warning, Sal had been dreading the lecture. Grace, now clean and in fresh clothes, opened the door when she knocked and met her smile with a stony face. Alrighty then, Sal muttered as she entered the hotel room. Menchu had gotten a suite with a couch and a kitchenette. 
Sal was relieved to see Asante relaxed on the couch, waiting for her. She wasn't going to be alone in this. Grace began to pace again, but Manchu put a gentle hand on her shoulder and suggested she go back to her room for a rest. She nodded once and left them without a word. Manchu put his hands behind his back and regarded Sal and Asante. He sighed and looked at the floor, then back at them. I am aware that Grace has already given Sal the gist of my thinking on this little adventure you two have taken, he said. I have spoken with Asante as well. Do you understand why you shouldn't have done what you did? Sal nodded. That much was clear to me by the time the riot started, she said. We are a team for a reason. Sometimes Liam fights, sometimes Asante and Liam do similar information hunts. Sometimes you and I think along the same lines. But we all have our role to play, and the team needs us like a table needs all of its legs. He took another deep breath and looked at Sal. This trip did show me that you can be trusted, though. Your text to Liam was perfect. If there was nothing amiss, we wouldn't have followed you. You supported Asante, and you kept her secrets. We were under the impression you were trustworthy, and now you have proven it. Sal blinked at the unexpected compliment. She said it was important, so I treated it like it was important. Thank you, Sally. Asante said in a low voice. I hope this has underscored the truth that drives the order, namely that magic, whether benign or evil, is beyond our understanding, and it is safest when locked away. For as long as Seamus lived, this stolen book, he emphasized stolen and looked at Asante when he said it, could be considered benign, since Seamus knew what he was doing. When he died, the true intent of the gluttony demon was able to come through. Asante, if we all knew what we were doing, it would be one thing. But even when there was a man among us who did know, the moment he didn't have control over the book, everything spiraled downward. Asante nodded, her lips pursed. Sal got the feeling she wanted to argue with him, but currently she didn't have anything with which to back up her argument. The day had ended better than Sal had feared, with no deaths and only minor injuries. The restaurant looked like it would reopen after some major cleaning, renovations, and possibly a visit from a local priest and some holy water. Deep in thought, Sal left Menchu and Asante. She thought about Aaron and the fact that she had kept the secret from the team and wondered if she should have said something sooner than she had. But her gut still said she had made the right move. Considering that she had walked straight into hell due to trusting her gut, and only a quick text to Liam had saved them, she wondered if she should continue to trust it. She took the stairs to the floor below, where she and Liam and Grace had rooms. She paused outside Liam's door, hand raised to knock. She clenched her fist and then dropped her hand without knocking. She took a step past the door, but it opened before she could walk away. Liam looked startled to see her. Ah, oh, there you are. Asante wants to meet in the bar for a short week for Father Hunter. Bit of food, some beer, some stories. And I think Manchu wants an excuse to spend a little more time to make sure Chef is all right. Do you want to come down with me? Yeah, in a little bit, Sal said, and stepped past him into his dark room. He didn't object and closed the door behind them, pausing only to place the privacy sign on the doorknob. 
You're listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.